Jesus, we do love you. And at the same time, we confess that our love is not as pure as it could be. Uh, God, we know that there are two paths set before us, one that honors you and one that leads away from you. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts even now to be resolved to walk with you on the path that you have for us. So please help us now as we open your word and look at what you have to say to us. May we be attentive. Please change us and transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our sermon series here through the book of Revelation. Um, And I've been really enjoying Revelation as I've been going through it, as I've been looking at it. A few times lately I've been looking at the the different songs that we see being sung in heaven in worship of God. And it's a wonderful book. It reminds us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Reminds us that Jesus is coming again. And it reminds us that God is in control. And yes, there are a lot of things in Revelation that I don't know. But what I do know is has just been really rich and pleasing to my soul. I, I hope that what happens for you as you study the book of Revelation uh, as we go through this series, that it reminds you to fix your eyes on Jesus and to worship God. So that, that's what we're about here. That's what we're doing. In chapters 2 through 3 of Revelation, Jesus has seven messages for the seven churches. And if you have a Bible that has red letters of Jesus, you would see that all, every single word in chapter 2 and 3 is spoken from Jesus. And then also... Each of the seven messages says at the end, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we are supposed to listen to these messages. And in many ways, these seven churches that we meet in Revelation 2 through 3, they represent different stages that any church could find themselves in. So, um, and the, the ones that we looked at the last two, the one that we looked at last Sunday, the church in Pergamum, and the one that we're looking at today in Thyatira, these two remind me a lot of the church in America. So I I hope especially that we're listening to these words because what we see here, we see around us and we may even see in our own hearts. So I I hope that we're going to listen. In both of those churches, in Pergamum and Thyatira, we saw two groups of people. One that was very faithful and one that was very unfaithful. In both churches, there was great temptation from the world around to fall into sin. And sadly, some people, even within the church, fell into that temptation. Let it be a reminder for us that temptation is all around us, too. So today, what we're going to do is we are going to take a trip to White Castle. Okay? Not this White Castle. Um, <laughs> Although, uh, in, I believe it's three Sundays, we have a guest speaker coming here. I'm going to be out of town. And uh, White Castle is to that guest speaker what Taco Bell is to me. So you'll have to give him a hard time about that. And since we're talking about White Castle, just to prepare you for that guy, um, I found this picture online. I love this picture. Uh, they call these sliders, I think. I've also heard them called something else uh, much more uh, disastrous. But um, there's like 20 of these on one plate. And I love this picture because there's one drink and one portion of fries, as if this is a meal for one person here. But, um, but that is not the White Castle that we are going to, as much as we might like to. Maybe, maybe you can make a trip there later on today. But um, as I've mentioned to you, all seven churches that we see in Revelation 2 through 3 are in modern-day Turkey. Uh, let me put up a map here. Uh, I don't know if you can see all that on the map, but we, we started, you can see down there on the bottom, number one is Ephesus on the, the western coast, and, and this is modern-day Turkey. 
And then the book of Revelation kind of goes on a, on a clockwise tour. Some people have said it's kind of like a mail route. So we started in Ephesus, then we went to Smyrna, then we went to Pergamum, and today we're at number four up there in Thyatira. Now, um, Thyatira, in, if you were to go there today and visit the ruins, you would go to the city of Akhisar. And my limited Turkish that I know, uh, Akhisar means white castle. So there you go. If you were to go to Turkey to visit the ruins of Thyatira, you would go to White Castle. And there is not a White Castle restaurant there. I checked on it. They don't have it. But, um, uh, and then I also put up there, on the, on the right-hand side of the screen, I put another red dot. That's where I lived uh, when I was in Turkey for the year there. I just thought some of you might be interested to know that. So, um, Well, the, the city of Thyatira holds a special place in my heart for another reason. And uh, there's one other place in the Bible where the book of, or, excuse me, where the city of Thyatira is mentioned. Does anybody know it? I'd be really impressed if anybody knew this one. But uh, there's one other place in the Bible where Thyatira is mentioned. In Acts 16, Paul met a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. So I have a daughter named Lydia. So I actually uh, pray this passage, this passage that we're going to look at today in Revelation 2, I pray this over my daughter, Lydia. So, and, and just a little side note here. Um, do you have passages of scripture that you pray over your children? If not, I would highly recommend that you do that. Just, you know, whether you pick a favorite passage of yours or something that you want to be true of your kids, uh, pick that and, and pray it regularly for your children. Uh, pray it as a blessing on them. Uh, pray that God will do his work to, to transform them. So anyway, so this is a special passage to me. Um, it's a message from Jesus for the people of the church in Thyatira, but as is with all the case in all seven of these messages, it's for us as well. So let's listen to what the Spirit says to us as we look at these words in Revelation 2. So we're going to walk through our passage today, Revelation 2, 18 through 19, and we're going to look at, look at it in three different sections. So first I want to read verses 18 through 19. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So right away in verse 18 there, we see Jesus described as the Son of God, and then we also see him described with eyes like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. It's the same description that we saw back in chapter 1, and it's a very similar description to what we see in the Old Testament book of Daniel, where, where Daniel had a vision of heaven as well. And by the way, the book of Revelation has a whole lot of Old Testament imagery in it. And the way that I like to think of it is that you think about all these storylines that are running throughout the Bible, and they come to a conclusion in the book of Revelation. So it's kind of neat then, this, this vision that Daniel had many, many centuries ago is repeated here in Revelation as the Apostle John saw a vision of Jesus as well. But then after that description, we go to verse 19, and it's... Um, Jesus is commending the people in the church of Thyatira for six things. But he starts off by saying, I know. And in fact, in all seven churches, Jesus says to them, I know. It, it reminds us that, that God knows what's going on in us. We can't hide from him. We might like to think that we can hide some of the things that we're doing from him, but we can't. He knows. And here, it's a good thing. He's, he points out six good things that they were doing. And I just want to quickly walk through those six things. First, the people in the church of Thyatira had good deeds. We're supposed to have good deeds. 
Now, we're supposed to have faith first, but flowing out of that faith, we're supposed to have good deeds. In Ephesians 2, one of the most famous passages in the Bible that describes the gospel message, verses 8 and 9 just very succinctly tell us what the gospel is. Then verse 10 tells us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk around in. So we're supposed to have good deeds. So let me just ask you a question. Are you a person who's known for good deeds? Are you a person who stands out? What other people say of you? Boy, that is a person who is at work doing good things. God has lined these good things up for us. We should walk around in them. Yes, faith must come first. We don't earn our way to God by our good deeds. But having put our faith in Christ, then we're supposed to live a life full of good deeds. Okay, good deeds. And then second, the church in Thyatira was commended for their love. And this is obviously huge. Jesus told us the two most important commands are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are supposed to be known for our love. So let me ask you, are you known for your love? Or are you known as kind of a cranky person? Or... <laughs> Didn't have to raise your hand there. That's all right. Uh, or are you known as a selfish person? You know, we're supposed to have this love for God that overflows into love for people around us, but it's so easy for us just to focus on ourselves. Have any of you fallen into that trap lately where you really just love yourself? Okay, and then third, uh, the people there, they had faith, and obviously we're supposed to have faith. We, we believe in a God. Even though we can't see him, we give our entire lives to him. That's what faith means. And the people on the outside might look at us funny and say, what are you doing? You can't even see him. Isn't it better to live your life for something that you can see and taste and smell and touch? That's what the world goes after. But we are to live by faith, trusting that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's our best life. I, I hope you know that. And then also we're supposed to be known for our service. Now again, um, we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, but it's so easy for us to get focused just on ourselves. So how are you doing in this one? Are you known for your service? Are you a person that somebody would know that they can go to you and that you would help them instead of just turning a cold shoulder to them? Uh, the church here was known for their service. And then also they were known for their perseverance. That's a word that means to remain under. Uh, it implies being underneath difficult circumstances. We all go through difficult circumstances in life, but not everybody perseveres. So the church in Thyatira here, they were going through difficult circumstances, and they were commended because they persevered. They continued to walk by faith. Now the Bible has a lot to say about perseverance. We are supposed to remain strong until the end. Let me put up a few verses here about pers perseverance. The first one's from Jesus. My clicker just automatically stopped working here. We'll get it back on track, though. No worries. Uh, the first verse is Matthew 10:22, where Jesus said, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So Jesus has this expectation of us that we would stand firm. Colossians 1, 22-23, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. 
it, it's kind of an interesting verse, but again, it gives this expectation that we would continue in our faith. And then Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Difficult times will come for us, but God is always faithful, and he gives us everything that we need to persevere. Let us be faithful and hold on to him. And then that leads into the sixth thing that Jesus commended the people in the church of Thyatira for. They continue to grow. It says of them, you are now doing more than you did at first. This is the way that it should go, right? We should keep on growing. We should be rooted and built up in him. We should be strengthened in the faith, right? If God's at work in our hearts, that's what he does. And if we remain true to him, we should see evidence of this continual building up in our lives. Okay, so the church in Thyatira, uh, one section of people in there was doing really well, just like we saw last week with the church in Pergamum. Unfortunately, there was another section of the people there, and they weren't doing so well. So let's turn to them now in verses 20 through 23. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So in verse 20, we meet somebody who's nicknamed Jezebel there, who led people astray. Now in the Old Testament, there was a wicked woman named Jezebel. She married King Ahab of Israel, and she was a foreigner. So she, she was not an Israelite, but King Ahab married her. And the problem is that Jezebel worshipped other gods, and Jezebel even seduced the people to worship other gods. They, they built a temple for her in the city, and, and idol worship was brought into Israel. In 1 Kings 21-25, it says, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel. His wife. So do you see the ministry of Jezebel there? To urge people to go into sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, we mentioned those two sins last Sunday in my sermon. I went into a little bit more depth about the, the sins of sexual immorality and idolatry. Uh, I'm not going to rehash them now. Uh, I will say that that sermon is online, and if you're interested to hear what I had to say about them, you can just go to our website and click on last week's sermon, and you'll find it there. Um, but I do want to say this about sexual immorality and adultery. Um, they're often linked together in the Bible. And, and one of the books of the Bible that tells us about this is the book of Hosea. Remember the book of Hosea? Um, it was a word picture where God told Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman as a word picture of what Israel had done. Israel was supposed to be true to God. And, and the picture of that, uh, the analogy, is a marriage. And did you know that our marriages, on Valentine's Day here, let's talk about marriage for a bit. Our marriages are supposed to represent to this world the love that God has for us. When we say, I do to each other and commit until death do us part, the reason we're supposed to do that is because God has committed to us eternally. So think about that. God had committed to his people eternally, but his people went a different direction. And in the book of Hosea, that is called both adultery and idolatry. So 
the path that God has for us, he wants us to stay on it. And any way in which we would leave that path could be called both adultery and immorality. And it happens because we think that there's something better on the other path. Think about that. God has this path for us. And, and we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus and continue to walk around with Jesus. But we get this temptation over here, and, and if we stray, it's because we think there's something over here for us. Whether that's pleasure, or security, or fame, or success, or whatever it might be, we all too often are tempted to go away from God and to follow that wrong path. And again, that could be called adultery or idolatry. And we need to be careful. These temptations are all around us. And if we're understanding these passages correctly in Pergamum and Thyatira, they're even in the church. You see, we are not immune to temptation just because we walk inside the doors of a church building on a Sunday morning. Nor are we immune to temptation simply because we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We still live in this world and the temptations are all around us and we need to be careful with those temptations. We need to stand firm. And some of the people in the church of Thyatira didn't stand firm. They followed Jezebel's teaching into sexual immorality and idolatry. And look at God's response. How's God going to respond to this? Check this out. Uh, we can get the next slide up there. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. Isn't that amazing? Here's God who sees all the wickedness that goes on. We've already known, we've already seen, I know your deeds. So he knows what's going on in the church of Thyatira and his response was to give time to repent. I love this about God. He didn't come in wrath right away. He gave time to repent. And if we're in sin, that's what we should do. We should repent. In five of the seven churches, the message was for the people to repent. It's a message that we should always be ready to hear. We should always be willing to look at our hearts and to talk to God about this and say, God, is there anything that's going wrong in me? And if so, we repent. And repentance should be both in our thoughts and in our actions. In our thoughts, we have come up with some reason, rationalizing our sin, telling ourselves it's okay for us to go this way. We need to confess that to God and say, I'm sorry, God. And then in our actions, we need to turn around from those wicked deeds that we've been doing and turn towards Jesus and walk on the path that he has for us. And in his kindness, he offers us time to repent. And I want you to know this about God. Um, Maybe some churches get a bad rap for you know the preacher gets up there and points his finger at you, not realizing maybe that he has three fingers pointing back at himself and telling you all about your sin. Um, I'm right along with you guys, though, and, and I know a couple things. I know that I still struggle with sin, but I also know the heart of God, that he gives us time to repent. Look at this in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. And let me just stop there. Do you, ever, do you ever look at the world, look at all the sin going on and say, come on, God, can't you stop it? Can't you throw down some wrath on those wicked evildoers? Look at this next part of the verse, though. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So if you ever wonder why God doesn't take care of more of it, part of the reason is because he wants everyone to repent. Another part of the reason is because he has taken care of it. Jesus Christ already died on the cross so that anyone who comes to him can receive complete forgiveness of sins. 
That's the answer. God gives time for repentance. Unfortunately, as it says in verse 21, Jezebel was unwilling to repent. So in verse 22, God said that he would cast her on a bed, not a bed of immorality like she was so used to, but a bed of suffering. And then God also said that he would cause those to suffer who follow her ways. And even said in verse 23 that he would strike her children dead. And don't misunderstand, her children aren't the innocent bystanders here. They are the people who follow her teaching and, and teach others to do the same. So the moral of the story here is that God punishes sin. And although there may be temporary pleasures in sin, they do not come with eternal blessing. The blessed life is a life where we flee from sin and follow God into what he has for us. And, and we're told that God will punish, and we're told one of the reasons why in verse 23, where it says, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. All throughout the Bible, God is known as the one who searches our hearts, and he knows our deeds. So what should we do with that? If God knows everything that's going on in our hearts and in our minds, and if we're in sin, what should we do? Repent. Go humbly before God and say, God, you already know about this. I know I'm struggling with it. Would you please forgive me and help me to turn away from it? God is the one who judges. We know that he judges fairly but we struggle with it. And in verse 24, if we were to look at the next verse, we see the power behind all this struggle, all this mess in the world. It's none other than Satan himself. Satan, as it says in 1 Peter 5.8, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And in the church in Thyatira, they, they tolerated it. Isn't it interesting? The, the message in verse 20 was that Jesus was upset with them because they had tolerated Jezebel in her teaching. Now, we should tolerate sinners. We should love them and have mercy on them, but we should not tolerate their teaching. We should flee from it. We must not let it into our church. We must not let it into our lives. And, and it's interesting in America, as I said, Pergamum and Thyatira remind me a lot of America. Think about America and the messages all around us. We so value our First Amendment to our Constitution, don't we? The freedom of religion and the freedom of speech. Think about that. That is what allows us to meet here this morning and sing worship to God and open up His Word. We can do that freely here. But do you know what it also means? It means the people out there are free to say what they want to as well. And they're saying a lot of awful, wicked, sinful, horrible things. And our society applauds a lot of what they're saying. Our, our movies, our, our culture, our songs, a lot of it is stuff that we should not be engaged in, yet they have every right in our country to say it, and a lot of it would tempt us if we would listen. Think about how much filth is readily accessible to you. Think about it. If you were to go home, just a, a click away, get the remote control out, get, out, get your internet out, it's right there for you. So we must be careful. The world wants us to pursue sin, but we must not. Instead, we should let God search our hearts. Here's a couple great verses to use on this. Psalm 139, 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, 
and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're serious about turning away from sin, talk to God like this and say, God, show me what's on my heart and help me to flee from that wickedness. Okay, let's take a look now at the rest of our passage, verses 24 through 29. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this again is a message for the faithful people in Thyatira. Um, these are the people who didn't follow Satan's ways or Jezebel's ways, and I love the message for them in verse 25. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus is coming back, and he wants them to hold on to what he has given. And again, like I said before, God has given us all that we need. Let me explain what I mean by that. God has given us all that we need to remain faithful until Jesus comes again. First of all, he gave Jesus. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins, that anyone who receives Him can be washed clean and can be in an eternity-long relationship with God. God has also given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the things that God wants us to do. So when God asks us to hold on, we don't have to hold on in our own power. We can trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us with that. So how often do you rely on that power? How often do you go to God and, in obedience to what we're commanded in Ephesians 5.18, ask God to be filled with the Holy Spirit? The opposite side of that would be to assume that we could do this life in our own power. So please know that God has given the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, we are not perhaps what you would call a charismatic church, but we are a church that believes deeply in the Holy Spirit and trusts that he empowers us for daily living, that he leads us, and that we are commanded to keep in step with the Spirit and to follow him. So let's trust in the Holy Spirit as we hold on to Christ. And there's one other thing God has given us to help us as we wait, a promise. A promise that Jesus is coming again. Life is short and full of temptation, but Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again, we will see how every moment that we spent fixing our eyes on Jesus was worth it. So let's persevere. Or like it says in verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nation. Now, as I've been saying throughout this series, we do not have the power to overcome on our own. We can only overcome as we trust in the one, Jesus Christ, who has already overcome. We overcome as we continue to follow him and do his will. And if we do that, it says here that we get to share in his authority over the nations. And then the next verse is a quote from Psalm 2. Now, Psalm 2 is a very interesting psalm. I refreshed my memory on it this week. Uh, you might want to look at Psalm 2 in your devotions sometime this week. It's a psalm in which God tells us that he has installed his king in Zion, and we learn later that the king is his son. And we now know, looking back, that that son is Jesus Christ. Okay, so... God installed King Jesus as king. But there were some people in Psalm 2 who rebelled against that. They saw who God put as king, and they're like, wait a second, we don't like that king. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we might not always like what King Jesus has to say about what our lives should look like. 
I hope we don't rebel. I hope we submit if it comes to that point. But in Psalm 2, the people were rebelling against God. And this is great. I love in Psalm 2, God's response to these people who show up in rebellion. Does God say, oh no, what do I do? No. God laughed at them. And then he rebuked them. In Psalm 2, we are told things like, serve the Lord with fear and kiss the Son, lest he be angry. God has installed King Jesus as king. And the way I like to say it is this way. If if Jesus is king, that means that I'm not. So let me ask you two questions about King Jesus, the one who has authority. First, have you submitted to him? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? If not, then you are in the unwise position of pretending that there is another king. And, And most often, I think the way that works is that we like to set ourselves up as king or queen of our own lives. Jesus is king. The path that we're supposed to follow is a path where we submit to him. But we are tempted to maintain control or pretend to maintain control of our own lives because we think that we have some better idea of how we could live our lives. So have you submitted to Jesus? Have you given your life to him? And if you're at all wondering whether or not you have, I just want to urge you to talk to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, you're my king. You're my savior. You're my Lord. I give my life to you. But then second, if you've already received Jesus as your king, how are you doing at submitting every area of your life to him? And I do mean every. If he's king, that means that we need to relinquish any ideas that we might have of being on the throne and that we serve the one who truly is the king. And the rest of our lives should be spent in dialogue with our king saying, how can I serve you? Our lives should be spent worshiping him, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask you the question, how are you doing with all of that? Are there any areas of your life that if you were to look at them, you would say, that does not appear to be submitted to King Jesus? And then what do you do? If you find something that's not submitted to Jesus, repent. God, in his mercy, gives time to repent. But that time may run out eventually. We see the the book of Revelation, if you haven't read the end of it, time does run out for those who continue to reject Jesus Christ. So submit to him, and then ongoingly, every day of your life, submit every area to him. Jesus has this authority Um, And then interestingly here in Revelation 2, he's going to share that authority with us. That reminds me of the Great Commission in Matthew 2, where Jesus, excuse me, Matthew 28, where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. I love this. We've been given that authority. We don't have to wait for a politician to tell us it's okay. We don't have to wait for God to do anything else. He's already given us the Holy Spirit. He's already given us this command We are to go and make disciples of all nations. Whether that means next door to help your neighbor come to know Christ or grow in their faith, or whether it means going to Haiti or to the ends of the earth. We have been given authority to go and make disciples of all nations. Eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the King. There is no other. He is We learn in Revelation, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are to go and let the world know that. And eventually they will come to know that, whether that's in joyful submission to him or whether it's in submission to him 
because they've been rejecting him and then they finally come to see who he is. But it's scary for those who continue in rejection. Here in Psalm 2, it talks about the iron scepter. That iron scepter shows up again in Revelation 19 and it's bad news for those who have persisted in rejection of Jesus Christ. So we are to go to this world and the authority that Jesus has given and to make disciples, to let them know ahead of time that Jesus is coming again and that he is Lord and to urge them to be reconciled to God. Okay, so we'll be given that authority. Then also in verse 28, it says that we'll be given the morning star. There have been a lot of suggestions as to what the morning star might mean, but I think the simplest way to look at that is that it's Jesus himself. In Revelation 22:16, Jesus is called the bright morning star. Now, for those of us who persevere until the end, we will be given the gift of Jesus Christ, and what better gift is there? Okay, so that's the church in Thyatira a lot like the church in Pergamum and a lot like the church in America where we see two different segments of the people. One very faithful, one very unfaithful. And those two segments are even in the same church. And again, we need to be so careful about this. Not just assuming that we're on the right path, but constantly talking to God about the path that he wants for us. So I want to close my sermon with an application for each of these two groups. One is the unfaithful, those who have followed a different path, the path that Satan wants us to follow. Application number one, if there's any sin in your life, repent. And when I say if there's any sin, what I'm talking about is, I'm talking about even the Christian who has strayed or drifted. And and that happens. But if you know that it it has happened, repent. Repent. But this also applies to the person who has never received Jesus Christ. If you've lived your whole life in rejection of Jesus, repent of that sin and receive him. There is temptation all around us. And we can very easily justify it. Justify our evil behavior. But we must not tolerate that kind of thinking. That's what the church in Thyatira was told. Not to tolerate that kind of thinking, that kind of teaching. Our sin damages our relationship with God and we should hate it so much that we want it gone. Is that how you feel about sin? Do you hate it? Do you hate what it does to your relationship with God? Or do you look at sin and say, that's not so bad. It even kind of looks okay. We've got to be careful because it's so tempting for us to assume that we can walk that path and not get burned. But whether you're a Christian caught up in some sin or someone who hasn't yet given your life to Jesus, you need to repent. But remember God's mercy, too. He gives time for repentance. But repent now before time runs out. Ask God to show you your sin and be humble about it. And then ask God to cleanse you and to give you the strength to walk the path that he has for you. Okay, and then application number two. If you are walking with Jesus, by faith, hold on to what you have until he comes. Again, God has given us all we need. Yes, there are temptations, but God has sent Jesus to cleanse us from sin. He sent the Holy Spirit to fill us. And if we, by faith, continue to submit ourselves to God, to worship him, to meet with him in his word, to seek him in prayer, to serve him and to serve others, If we're committed to that kind of a lifestyle, God will strengthen us to hold on to what we have until Jesus comes again.
In Christ we can overcome. But that means we need to flee from sin and pursue righteousness. The messages to Pergamum and Thyatira remind me that there are two paths in life. One path is the one God has for us. The other leads away from God. And it can look very tempting at times. But let us persevere in faith. Let's trust that the best life for us is a life where we follow Jesus. Only let us hold on to what we have until he comes. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again that you've laid it out so clearly. There are two paths. One is the one that you have for us, and one is the one that leads away from you. Yet it's a path that we are tempted to take, and sometimes have taken. God, please forgive us for our sins. We pray right now that you would show us our sin, and that we would hate it so much that we would flee from it, that we would confess it to you. And God, we pray that you would cleanse us, and strengthen us to walk on the path that you have for us. And then, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we continue to follow you, worshiping you and meeting with you in prayer, and doing those good deeds that you have prepared for us to walk around in, God, we pray that you would strengthen us to hold on to that faith, to hold on to you until Jesus comes again. We thank you, God, for how you've revealed this to us. We pray that you would strengthen us in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk according to your ways. Please fill us with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.